Chapter 1. Behold, it was Leah. A certain bridegroom went joyfully to bed one night, confident that his seven years of labor were crowned with victory, and that it was his beloved Rachel whom he embraced in the dark of the bridal chamber. But, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Genesis chapter 29 verse 25. The woe-begone bridegroom was compelled to serve seven years more, but his additional service did not erase the undesired bondage to Leah. It had been sin that had placed Jacob on an unfavorable footing and at the mercy of his calculating father-in-law, Laban. The marriage, contracted in good faith, gave Jacob eventually three undesired wives besides his Rachel, a wrangling family, and an inheritance of trouble. The children of the unloved wives revealed an unlovely disposition, and between them and their father a deep rift developed which none of the father's pleading resolved. They were his sons, and yet they were not his sons, for they despised his word. Genesis chapter 34, verses 30 through 31. Hated the son of his beloved Rachel. Genesis chapter 37, verses 4 and 8. Defiled his marriage bed. Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. And gave him more trouble than his enemies. They were thus better sons to Laban than to believing Jacob, the man who, having been overcome and subdued by God, had thereby prevailed with him, Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32, and became a prince in God. This bit of history has particular relevance to Christian philosophy and theology. The Christian thinker, laboring as he often must on alien ground, has too often embraced as his own a non-Christian principle which he believed would be fruitful in terms of Christian thought. He has made bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh a principle which he has believed would bear fruit in a Christian worldview. This resultant hybrid worldview he believed would fall heir to this world's substance and show mastery and dominion over the human mind. In this expectation, early Christian thinkers embraced Platonism, the Scholastics, Aristotelianism, the men of the Enlightenment era, Cartesianism, and Rationalism, and men of the 19th and 20th centuries, Kantianism, Existentialism, and other alien brides, hoping thereby that in the dark they held Rachel. But in the morning, behold, it was Leah. The issue of such a union has consistently been semi-alien seed which is in rebellion against its parentage and denies it more thoroughly than its enemies can. The potentiality of a child cannot exceed its inheritance. Chinese parents can only beget a Chinese child. They cannot produce a Negro or a Dane, and all their wishing cannot make it so. In like fashion, the potentiality of a philosophy cannot exceed its presupposition. What a philosophy assumes, to begin with, ultimately determines all it can be or can know. Greek philosophy assumed, or had, as its given, the physical world and its structure as ultimate. As a result, it could not account for those things which were not included in its given or presupposition. Form and matter it seemed to be able to give an interpretation of, but purpose and personality escaped it. Moreover, it felt that a tension between form and matter existed. Ultimately, everything had to be reduced to one or the other, or be eliminated from consideration as unreal. As Van Til has stated it, 
basic to all the thinking of the Greeks, was the assumption that all being as at bottom one. To the extent that they allowed for change at all, this change was ultimate. In dealing with being, with the ultimate, they began, not with the idea of the self-contained God, but with the idea of the self-contained character of nature. Thus they looked for being in nature, not beyond nature. As a result, every fact of nature and all new developments revealed the possibilities and potentialities of nature. They believed in the mysterious universe. They were perfectly willing, therefore, to leave open a place for the unknown, but this unknown must be thought of as the utterly unknowable and indeterminate. In other words, the universe revealed God in his being. But because the universe was characterized by change, God himself was characterized by change. The Greeks were ready to hear Paul speak on the resurrection. They were ready to accept that fact as a new indication of the potentiality of being, and therefore of man. But they could not accept the framework in which Paul presented that resurrection, the Almighty Creator God, who is Sustainer and Redeemer. In their framework, the resurrection was another curious fact, revelatory of nature's possibility, and yet revealing nothing, because nature tomorrow could reveal something further or different. Since nature was being, and this being changed, there was no ultimate truth. Finally, except change, and the only authority was man's expert experience of this change in the nominal realm. Thus Greek philosophy could not understand or accept the gospel. It was to them foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23 The tragedy that ensued, however, was that early Christian thought wedded itself to the Leah of Greek philosophy in the hopes of producing a Christian worldview. But a philosophy which begins with matter, structure, or change as its ultimate and starting point can never result in a delineation of the ways of the self-contained creator of nature. Christian thought has consistently gone astray throughout most of its history by seeking to answer the world in terms of the world's own categories. It has assumed that it must marry Leah to speak either to Leah or Laban and has ended only in sad bondage to both. This was exactly the course which Roman Catholicism took. It tried to unite the Christian doctrine of grace to the Greek concept of nature, understood as a unity of form and matter. In Thomas Aquinas, the classical statement of this union is found, and the result is that God is virtually identified with nature as phenomenal reality to man. The God of scholasticism is nature analyzed into substance, God the Father, structure, God the Son, and act, God the Holy Ghost. The Christian terminology fails to give Christian life and character, however, to an essentially Greek worldview. Any logical development of scholastic thought dissolves the Christian claims into bare immanentism. God is swallowed up by nature. And rationalism, the authority of man's reason, assumes full jurisdiction. The tragic position of the Roman Church is that it must attempt the role of Canute and say what that monarch could not seriously say to the sea, thus far and no further. Rome would arrest by decree the very forces it has unleashed, and its decree has consistently failed in its purpose. To deny God as ultimate means to affirm man as ultimate. To make nature the container of God is finally to make man God's container. Whenever Christian philosophy has had any other starting point than the self-contained God, it has led 
despite its protestations, to a man-contained God. In the morning, it finds itself in bed with Leah. This was clearly seen in Cartesian thought. Descartes, after all, was the natural son of scholasticism. He revealed honestly and clearly the implications of its hybrid nature. Descartes began, not with the self-contained God of Scripture, but with the self-contained man. The starting point of his philosophy was, I think, therefore I am. From this point of origin, Descartes went on to prove the existence of nature and the existence of God. For scholasticism, nature had been the starting point, and God the object to be proved. Now nature itself joins the ranks of objects and man alone is the presupposition. The tension is no longer nature and grace, but man and nature, with God as an adjunct of both. Berkeley and Hume successively challenged the objective reality of nature and God. After all, the only real knowledge man had was of his own thinking. All inferences beyond that failed to give a proven objective realm of nature, or God. The only valid rational and empirical data was the human consciousness. Kant attempted to save for man the object's God and the world by destroying the subject-object concepts to all practical intent and creating in autonomous man a macrocosm containing both God and the world. Man thus contains both God and the world and destroys the subject-object relationship. God and nature are now man-contained. This is the basic assumption of existentialism, for in such thinking as exemplified in Barth and Bruner, man as the individual takes the place of the ontological trinity, in it being exhausted in relation and relation is exclusively internal. Thus a new God comes into play, celebrated by theologians and poets as the true God. This God, as Babette Deutsch says of Rilke's God in the Book of Hours, is not the creator of the universe, but seems rather the creation of mankind, and above all, of that most intensely conscious part of mankind, the artists. As Rilke himself stated it, What will you do, God, when I die? When I, your pitcher, broken lie. When I, your drink, go stale or dry. I am your garb, the trade you ply. You lose your meaning, losing me. The basic issue, therefore, has not changed since Eden. The temptation of man is to be as God, knowing, that is, determining for himself what shall be good and what shall be evil. Man establishes his own law and decrees, his own righteousness, and is not bound to a point of reference beyond himself. This is the original sin of man, the lust to be as God, and this is the constant drive of his being from which even the redeemed are not free. Man sees himself not as creature but as God, not as dependent but as an independent and autonomous being. Not even the most devout are free in this life from traces of this rebellion, nor is a belief in the inspiration of Scripture a guarantee of immunity. We have, after all, groups such as the Seventh-day Adventists and the Church of Rome, which affirm plenary inspiration while insisting on man's efficacious works and autonomous reason. Nor is Calvinism affirmed a sufficient safeguard. The very belief in predestination has been used as a potent weapon of self-righteousness, as Burns's Holy Willie's Prayer so effectively satirizes. The sad fact is that much of Calvinism in our day is mere traditionalism, 
the faith of the fathers affirmed as a part of one's heritage and without any vitality or insight. It is not surprising, therefore, that the most emphatic opposition to the Calvinism of Van Til, as well as Doyavird and others, has come from men who are ostensibly Calvinist leaders. The integrity of Van Til's Calvinism exposes the inconsistency and the betrayal inherent in their thinking, hence the heat of their attack. Jesse de Boer and Orlebeck, for example, are profoundly disturbed that Van Til begins with the self-contained God of Scripture instead of man's reason and the self-contained facts of this physical universe. From these facts, they would prove God, but any God that is added to a universe of self-contained facts is irrelevant to it. Because Van Til begins with a self-contained and ontological trinity, James Don is disturbed and asks, why does he himself select one aspect of God and exalt it to the highest principle of interpretation for every problem? Why does he not allow God's virtues to become an integral part of his principle of interpretation? But if we turn aside from God as being, the self-contained, ontological trinity to God is value. To the virtues of God as related to the world, then we have lost God as God. He becomes only a value of the ultimate and self-contained universe, and as such has no relationship to the God of Scripture. Such men as Don have not only embraced Leah, but, in the morning, are insistent that she is Rachel and denounce all who say otherwise. In the chapters which follow, an analysis of the Christian theistic philosophy of Cornelius Van Til is made. In his epistemologically self-conscious Calvinism, we have a consistent Christianity which significantly and effectively challenges not only the non-Christian philosophies of our time, but lays bare the failure of all ostensibly Christian thought which attempts to gain Christian fruit out of alien roots, which begins with any presupposition other than the self-contained and triune God of Scripture and whose starting point is fact rather than the ontological trinity.